What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the Two Man Power Trip. Chad and John, the Two Man Power Trip. That's uh, that's an awesome uh, name for yourselves. Good. How you doing, Chad? Hey, John. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Okay. This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Scotty Riggs, and you're listening to the Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling. Hey, man. What's up, guys? This is Homicide. Oh, that's my homie, Homicide with a big homie club. Yeah, that would be it. <laughs> hey, this is David Penzer, and this is the Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling. Well, thank you, thank you. Hear me, fear me. What's going on, guys? This is a 7-foot, 330-pound DNA of TNA. That's right. My DNA is outer space. And you're listening to the two-man power trip of professional wrestling. You know, I, I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know 10 times more than I do. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling, and now they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. Wrestling brought to you today and powered by Collector's World in Annandale, Virginia. Tomorrow, February 6, 2016, Kevin Thorne and the franchise Shane Douglas will be signing autographs and taking pictures live at Collector's World in Annandale, Virginia. Please visit collectorsworldva.com for more information on that awesome event and a little bit more about it later on in the show. But today, my name is Chad, and of course, I'm joined by my tag team partner, John Primetime. A pause, and John, today on the show, we're joined by a guy who's been a former WWE Tag Team Champion. He's wrestled in TNA, he's wrestled in Japan, he's wrestled everywhere you could possibly think of. He is a member of the Caden Murdoch Tag Team Duo. He is Trevor Murdoch. And what an awesome chat we had with Trevor Murdoch. Such a polarizing guy in terms of how he can carry that old school feel to him. He's an old school guy in a new school era. And you know what? There's so many different things that we can get into right away. But, John, you think about Caden Murdoch. You think about how different they were as compared to maybe some other teams that were on WWE TV in that mid to late 2000 era, 2005, 2006, 2007, 2008 and you think about the fact that Caden Murdoch being a top heel team and they had the look and they had the vignettes. We get into all that awesome stuff with Trevor. But talk about how they were the top heels of the tag team division. And that if you think about that near tag team revival that WWE tried to really push, Caden Murdoch were really the face of the division. Yeah, Chad, you know what? Thinking back, thinking, thinking, thinking. The tag team revival of the 2000s, when you kind of really delve into it and you really get into it, it was definitely a decent attempt by WWE to try to uh, bring tag team division back to life. Because at that point, it was basically all but dead. And it was quite boring for a period of time there. And I felt like they really tried to bring it back. And at the forefront, the top heels, the big dogs, 
of the tag division were definitely Trevor Murdoch and Lance Cade, who were just an awesome tag team. And we get into it in the interview, the chemistry that they had not only on camera, but off camera as well, how they conducted themselves backstage, how they stayed a team, whether they were at the airport, whether at the hotel, whatever it may be. And that's just old school tag team style. I, I absolutely love it. You hear that from all the old wrestlers uh, that were part of a tag team back in the day, and you get that same sense that that's the way they operated, and I love that old school sensibility that you know that Trevor Murdoch has. And we get into the tag team division at that time, and what he thought of it before, what he thought of it after, you know, obviously what he thought about it during that time. But it was so interesting to delve deep into those teams because you know you had Hurricane and Rosie, you had Crime Time, you had the Highlanders, you got the Hardy Boys, you got DX, and of course London and Kendrick. So we go, you know, we basically the meat and potatoes. We just cut right into it. We you know discuss all of those teams, all the feuds that they had, all the times they wrestled those guys, and we basically you know talked about what their impression was and what their feeling was and being the you know the top heel tag team for those uh you know for that time period for that uh for that era if you will in the WWE so while they were a great tag team it was just great to see that WWE at that point was trying to put a, a, ta- a great tag team division back together and who better than one of the best tag teams going at that point Kate and Murdoch to lead the charge and when you think about Kate and Murdoch, you think about their final, you know, big time feud. It was with DX, Triple H, and Shawn Michaels. And at that time, DX was getting a ton of TV time. And Kate and Murdoch really were the great foils for these two guys. And John, there's a really funny story that I know really stood out to you and I because it was just so, so funny. It was really unexpected that we were going to hear this from Trevor. But he talks about how Triple H really played a big part in Caden Murdoch's appearance in those vignettes, that they did a couple of them and they didn't really last. And Triple H stepped in and, you know, Vince didn't like him at first, but Triple H kind of tweaked him a little bit and he made him work. But then you think about the fact that Triple H at that time is really ascending to that role he has today. He's still kind of, you know, in the the locker room. He's one of the boys, kind of. He's starting to get his hand in producing a little bit. But Caden Murdoch being so old school, Triple H sees them as maybe somebody who could watch his back and I guess the collective back of uh, Degeneration X, but really Triple H when it came to an instance where there may have been a few ex-employees that had an axe to grind and Triple H seemingly was the target of said past employees. Yeah, you know what? A couple of great stories from Trevor Murdoch. I mean, the whole interview is just fantastic, but a couple of real great stories that really stood out and they involved Triple H. Now his first meeting with Triple H is absolutely hilarious about how he wanted to size him up and if anybody doesn't know what that means go look it up. But he wanted to size him up at the TV taping and kind of get a general sense of Triple H's size, you know, his build kind of basically figure out what he's dealing with here because he knows that if he's basically the same size as Triple H, maybe a little bit bigger, then he's okay, then he's fine. But he's thinking if he's a little smaller than him, maybe, you know, not so much. So it's just funny the way he tells the story, and it's just so funny when you think about it, that this guy is thinking about sizing up Triple H, but, you know, before he's going out there to wrestle 
at its first ever TV taping for the WWE. So that's just a tremendous story in itself, and, and you'll really, really enjoy especially the way he tells it. Such a great storyteller. And then there's another great story involving Triple H, which kind of brings me back to the point that we kind of made earlier, that they're just old-school, tough guys with that old-school mentality. Now, they were basically the quote-unquote enforcers, for Triple H. If anybody knows the story, the uh, New Age Outlaws, Billy Gunn and Road Dog, had an issue with Triple H, had an issue with WWE. This is a point in time where they were no longer with WWE. They were actually in TNA or doing indies or whatever they were doing. And they made a comment that, that they were going to find Triple H and they were going to do some damage to him. They were going to find Triple H and they were going to hurt him. Obviously, there was a lot of heat between them. There was a lot of contention between them. He had a lot of issues going on between the Outlaws and Triple H that obviously aren't there today. But Triple H really felt that there was an issue. He was a little bit nervous. He was a little bit uh, skeptical about if the Outlaws were really going to basically bring their threat to life. So what does Triple H do? He finds the two toughest dudes in the locker room and he says basically guys you're my enforcers for the night you got my back if you see billy gunn if you see road dog if they try anything you're gonna beat the shit out of them so that's just his story about that i mean he goes into way more detail than i just did right there but such a great funny story definitely stick around for that and that's just so interesting seeing the outlaws relationship with triple h then and the outlaws relationship with triple h now and Trevor Murdoch and Lance Cade being right there in the thick of it. You know, when you sit back and you listen to the interview and you start at the beginning, like we usually do, going back to the start of somebody's career and you see their passion for the wrestling business and you see why they got into it. And when you see who Trevor Murdoch learned from and you see that he had a hand in being trained by Harley Race, the great Harley Race, past guest Harley Race, who obviously needs no introduction whatsoever. But he learned from Harley Race for a portion of his career. He was able to get over into the Noah Dojo and really, you know, just be able to cut his teeth in an environment where you are getting that awesome experience that maybe now today you are not getting from a WWE Performance Center or from maybe a lower level indie where you might be booked every weekend, but you're not necessarily getting any kind of changing styles or, or learning the ropes, so to speak, from the guys that you should be. So what I like about the fact is that now Trevor is moving on to getting into the business of training himself. And, you know, you think about a guy like him who has the ropes of being taught by a guy like Harley Race or being in the Noah Dojo and being a WWE star for as long as he was and being in their system. How much does a guy like him have to offer to incoming students and sharing his knowledge with them? Now, as we talk about in the interview big time, training is definitely a big uh, part of the interview. Definitely a huge part of the beginning of the interview for sure and we talk about the Kansas City wrestling training facility that he just opened up down there in Kansas City Missouri and we talk about the training that he had prior which obviously if anybody knows the history of Trevor Murdoch you know that he was trained partially by the legendary the greatest wrestler on God's green earth Harley Race and just to say you were trained by Harley Race is utterly amazing and then to be able to use that training and become so good at your craft that you're passing along somebody else, it's just great to have that knowledge and great to be a part of that 
for sure. And then you just throw in the fact that he, through Harley Race, got to train at the NOAA Dojo. Pro Wrestling NOAA at its point in time was basically what New Japan is right now. The number one wrestling promotion in Japan. All Japan for a period of time was. Obviously New Japan, like I just mentioned, was and is now. And Pro, pro Wrestling NOAA basically had all the All Japan guys. And they became the top dogs for a brief period of time. Well, not so brief period of time over there in Japan. They had a tremendous run, uh, having match of the year candidates, wrestler of the year candidates, over and over again. And obviously, Trevor Murdoch was able to make a impact over there in pro wrestling Noah. And it was great that he was able to be trained in the dojo over there. We go into the respect factor of the Japanese. We go into the training of the Japanese. We delve deep into it, and we absolutely love talking about it. So not only you know being trained by Harley, being trained by the Noah Dojo. Now, today, him training wrestlers, him paying it forward and training a lot of the guys today. So, you really can't find anybody better. If you want a legitimate WWE star, a guy who was trained by the absolute best, you want to be trained by somebody? Who else but Trevor Murdoch? Oh, yeah. Excellently said. And, of course, she said making an impact as well in there. And we do get into his time as Jethro Holiday, and also one of the Dup members when he had a couple different stints in TNA, which is funny because he loves how he was booked basically in one shot and kind of confuses all hell how he was booked in another shot. But as always, when it comes to somebody who went into TNA, he had questions, he wanted some answers, and he gives us a few of those uh, instances and stories, including dealing with the uh, lightning bolt that is Vince Russo. Everybody always knows once there's a Vince Russo story, you know, you got you to gotta go through with asking a couple follow-ups, but we're going to throw him on the list of guys that's a fan of Vince Russo, which I cannot say about our next guest. And if you're listening to this in real time, episode 150 is coming up next Tuesday, which is the next episode from here. So if you're not listening in real time, that's fine. You're going to see he's the next person on the download list because it is the Louisville lip himself, James E. Cornett. He joined us. It was an awesome talk. It was in the midst of all the crazy Lucha Underground talk that was happening in the past five, six, seven days. And we get his take. It is hilarious. It is Jim Cornette at his finest. And I really urge you to wait around till Tuesday. Download that bad boy. It is going to be one for the ages. And it's also episode number 150 of the two-man power trip of wrestling. And we thank you so much, of course, for your continued patronage. And in listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling through episodes one through 149. So with that being said, I want to remind you today's episode is brought to you by Collector's World. And tomorrow, Saturday, February 6th, Kevin Thorne and the franchise Shane Douglas will be live at Collector's World in Annandale, Virginia. Please visit CollectorsWorldVA.com for more information about that. And also, of course, your continued support when it comes to the man himself, Kevin Thorne, and this great event that we have, Collector's World, sponsoring the show. And it has been a lot of fun dealing with them. And hopefully more to come with some cool tie-ins with the two-man power trip of wrestling. But with that being said, prime time. Hit him with a little two-man power trip of wrestling business and throw it over to Trevor Murdoch. Now for some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Wrestling Pal and at Two Man Power Trip. Subscribe to us on YouTube. Also subscribe to us on iTunes, where you can check out the feed for prior great episodes with 
the late great American Dream Dusty Rhodes, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, the legend Harley Race, the Lariat Stan Hansen, Jerry Jarrett, Jeff Jarrett, and so many more. Also check out the website tmptofwrestling.com, that is tmptofwrestling.com. You could also check us out on the I-95 Sports Network. Also, we are now a part of the Top Rope Press radio network, so visit us at topropepress.com. Now, for more information on booking Kevin Thorne, a.k.a. Mordecai, a.k.a. Kevin Fertig, please email us at bookings at tmptofwrestling.com. That is bookings at tmptofwrestling.com. Also, if you want to see Kevin Thorne's Pro Wrestling Tea Store, you can check that out and become a member of the Bike Club. And now, without any further ado, the former three-time WWE Tag Team Champion of the World, Trevor Murdoch. Please enjoy. on the line tonight is a former three-time WWE World Tag Team Champion and a four-time WLW World Champion. You remember him as part of the team of Caden Murdoch, but it's Trevor Murdoch on the line with us today, and thank you so much for joining the two-man power trip of wrestling. Oh, thanks for having me on, boys. Well, you know, it's our pleasure, and I'll tell you what, the one thing we want to talk about right out of the gate is the wrestling revival out of the state of Missouri, and of course, we're going to think right to the forefront of that and think about the KC Pro Wrestling Training Center. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that, and how did you end up coming up with uh, such a, a great little place called the KC Pro Wrestling Training Center? Well, it's always kind of been a dream of mine. I mean, I really enjoy training guys, like working with guys, trying to get them to the next level. And just like anything else, it took some time to get things together. I wanted to partner up with somebody on the physical end, on the fitness end, that knew exactly what they were talking about and people would take advice from. So no better, uh, the best person to work with is a guy that I trained when I was at Harley School. And he, not only is he a professional wrestler, he's also a certified personal trainer. Worked with guys like Drew Brees, a couple MLB players. And I wanted to make sure that I was able to give a student and or a wrestler that's trying to up his game a full, well-rounded place to come. And that's when, you know, we've come together and brought the Kansas City Pro Wrestling. And, and that's really cool because obviously there's a huge emphasis on conditioning and keeping yourself not only in good wrestling shape, but just good shape overall. And you see all of the, you know, the furthering of fitness and the way it's integrated with how the WWE looks at a prospect, and that's one of the main things they like to push. But how about your time, you know, training with Harley, and we're going to definitely get to that in just a minute, and also the time you spend with WWE uh, and their training system. Like, but what do you want to take from everything you've learned and bring it to the students you're going to have coming into your place? Well, I just want to integrate more wrestling. Um, nowadays, when you watch either on TV or a lot of independents, you've got guys that are doing some very acrobatic, high spots flipping around 
doing some very athletic things. But the fact of the matter is they take people out of the realm of believability. They stop believing some of the stuff they're doing. So I would like to integrate more of the pro wrestling in with some of that high flying and bouncing around. I'm not saying nowadays, just like anything else, wrestling has evolved. And if you don't evolve with it, you get left behind and you don't get the opportunities that you want. So it's, it's our focus to integrate some of the new school and some of the old school on top of having uh, a physical fitness trainer to work with to get yourself in shape. And also a professional wrestler that's a certified trainer knows what body parts to work and how to work out properly, what you need to do to keep yourself injury free before show and after show. Yeah, that's actually, that's a really good point because I think that new crop of superstar that's trying to get into the business has grown up in that era of the acrobatic, you know, of the high flyer and seeing the crazy flashy moves. And obviously guys get into the business now, you know, if you want to do that stuff, you got to have the right physical shape. You can't be, you know, 500 pounds and seven feet tall. Not saying you can't do it if you are, but doing moonsaults and flips and this and that, you get more of a smaller guy. But do you find people who want to actually be wrestlers rather than just, you know, the entertainer or just a high flyer? Do you see people wanting to gravitate more to being the actual wrestler now these days? It's a 50-50 mix. You get guys that actually want to be a Ben Wall-style type wrestler, and then you've got guys that <clears throat> want to do a little bit more of a John Morrison, you know, acrobatic style. It really, to be, to be honest with you, it really doesn't matter. It comes down to what you want and what kind of wrestler you want to be. But when you come to the Kansas City Pro Wrestling Training Facility, you'll have the basics and the knowledge to be able to do both. Now, getting to a little bit of your training, obviously you did a lot of training under the legendary, the greatest wrestler on God's green earth, Harley Race. What was it like training with Harley and, you know, the Harley Race Wrestling Academy? Well, I will tell you, the first three months I puked every single day. Um, (laughs) Harley kind of got a kick out of seeing, you know, how far he could push me before I'd get sick, run outside, puke, and run back in and try to catch up with calisthenics. Um you know, in the beginning, you know, you're, you're constantly looking over going, wow, I'm training under, you know, like you gentlemen said, eight-time NWA heavyweight champion, Harley Race. But after a while, he doesn't become that. He becomes more of a father figure, a friend, uh, somebody you don't want to disappoint. And he was somebody that expected, you know, perfection. He would make you do something over and over and over, even when it came down to minute details to make sure that you got it right. So when you went out there in front of the people, you did it right. Um, but he was also a type of guy that, you know, while you were in there and you were locked into a hold, he'd have his stun gun and he'd reach up and put it under your leg and shock the hell out of you. (laughs) You know, the last thing you're worried about is hardly having a taser because you're trying to, you know, have a good match in front of him and show him what you got. And you're focused on what's coming up next. And before you know it, you're getting electrocuted. It's just little things like that, hanging out with Harley. You had to kind of toughen up and suck it up and go, okay, well, you know, he is the toughest man in the business. I guess a little shocking going to kill me. <laughs> That's great. Do you kind of uh, put any of that training into what you do to your students at all? Do you take any of what Harley Race not almost did to you, but that toughness, that mentality, do you bring that to your training? I, yes, I, I, I bring it all. Um, the one thing that carried me over when I was in WWE was everybody knew that I was a good wrestler and I was tough. I could handle things. Um, they could put me in situations where I can not only protect myself, 
but if I needed to, let's say, lay the wood to somebody just to pass on a message, I was able to do that with no fear. Um, <clears throat> Harley really focused on teaching you in the ring how a guy could, if he wasn't working with you, what you could do to let him know that you were in control. And then there's other ways to work where you can still walk out of there kind of pain-free, if that makes any sense. You know, when you get in the ring, you you don't know who you're wrestling. You don't know what the demeanor of that guy is. And if he's not willing to do what I want him to do, I'm going to show him why he needs to listen to me. We can do it the hard way or the easy way. I prefer to pass that on to my students so they can protect themselves and make that judgment call when, it, when they face it. Now, obviously, you know, you train with Harley, but you also, through Harley, train with the NOAA Dojo. And the Japan, the Japanese style, is a lot of respect, uh, a lot of toughness, a lot of, you know, what Harley Race would definitely instill as well. What's the difference between training with the NOAA Dojo and training with Harley Race? Um, the NOAA Dojo, I mean, I'll just give you a quick overview of what I used to do. It was 500 squats a day, 300 push-ups a day. I'd have to bridge back on my head to touch my nose three minutes a day, between 100 and 150 bumps a day. You're running probably four or five 30-minute matches. On top of that, you're working out with the guys. I mean, <clears throat> they focus in their training more on cardio and time. Uh, they're they're interested in having long matches. That's why most of the time when you watch uh, Japanese matches over here, you only get the semi-main or the main event because there is no time restrictions on their matches. There's no there's not somebody in a gorilla in, in an earpiece telling you, all right, when you walk through the curtain, you only have 10 minutes. In Japan, they let you go over there and be creative and put on a competitive match. And that's, you know, over there, wrestling is still in the newspapers as an athletic sport. You know, wrestlers are still treated like almost as if, you know, movie stars over there. That's why a lot of your wrestlers want to go over there because they not only get the appreciation from the fans, but they can also go in the ring and go 35, 40 minutes and put on and tell a good story and put on a good show for the people and not have to worry so much about the entertainment end of it. The entertainment's within the match, not the flash and, and all the lights and, and the character shit you do before and after your match. To entertain the people, you have to show heart. You have to work hard. You have to go out there and, and hit hard, too, because those guys are going to bring it to you. And you just got to be man enough to <clears throat> take it and give it back. And Noah, when you were there, had some of the best wrestlers, not only in Japan, but some of the best wrestlers in the world. Uh, for instance, I know you had the opportunity you know, the honor of wrestling a guy like Kenta Kobashi. What was that experience like? Well, I become a little a little mark, you know what I mean? On the inside, I'm squealing like a schoolgirl, going, oh, my God, oh, my God, this is awesome. This is stuff that most guys would dream of. I got to wrestle with Masawa. Uh, I've got to wrestle with Mamaru Fuji, Kenta. I had a GHC heavyweight title match with Segura when he was champion. I mean, I'm still a fan of this business, and I'm still a fan of what we can do when we step into the ring and what we do for people. And so it's hard for me not to get excited about wrestling with guys like that. Those are the guys that I've watched tapes of for years trying to emulate and wanted to eventually be, you know, just lucky enough to be on the same card as those guys, let alone to be standing across the ring from them. Absolutely, and then a guy like Takayama, who's obviously a legit tough guy, and then, uh, <laughs> you know, a guy like Takayama, that. Akiyama, yeah. I'll tell you a little story with Akiyama. Um, my first trip over there, I was over there for three weeks. Um, the tour couldn't have went any better. It was, you know, had good matches. 
the last night I'm tagging with Bison, Lord rest his soul, against uh, uh, Saito and Akiyama. And uh, we're in there. And the whole tour, I'm ta- Vader's on the same tour, and he's riding with me, and he kept telling me, you know, when these Japanese guys hit you, you know, they hit you hard, you hit them back. You hit them the same way. You know, you, whatever they give you, you give back. And I've had this burned in my head for almost three weeks. So I'm in there, and they're pushing Saito and, and Akiyama for the tag titles. Their next match after us was going to be for the tag titles, and they were going to go over. And, yay, you know. So I'm in there, and I'm starting to trade forums with Akiyama. And man, he just – blast me potatoes the shit out of me so i'm you know i may be a young buck but i've i've heard it enough i fire one back he gives me another one harder so i give him one harder he hammers me this on the third one he just drills me so i mean hits me so hard it knocks me into the ropes and i recoil and i just step into the recoil and i give him a forearm the problem was when i came down i came over with the forearm i caught him right on on his chin i hit him right in the sweet spot his Mm. hands come up in the air and he takes the big fall, the big nesty plunge. <laughs> and I'm a young guy, and I'm looking around the ring, and I know I've fucked up. Almost to the point where the crowd goes, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> so I look over at Bice, I go, what do I do? They put him in a chokehold. <laughs> so I put him down and put him in a chin lock, and I'm working his neck, trying to get him revived while I'm, you know, I'm working the hold. And he comes to, and he starts shaking, and I feel anger from the inside out coming out of this man hmm. and as he goes to stand up he picks me up and gives me a side suplex and puts me on my head and i watch my knees go past my head and bounce off the mat and you watch him just stumble over and tag saito and then saito comes in and proceeds to throw these vicious kicks to the chest to my back to the chest to my back basically getting <laughs> Nakayama's point across because he couldn't at that moment but those are the kind of things that i was faced with you know in japan did you deal with any kind of backlash after that? Was there a lot of like heat from any of the guys? I didn't come back for a year. Uh, Akiyama was so mad. He cussed me in English, just let me know how mad he was. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, he, he wasn't cussing at me in Japanese where I couldn't understand it. No, he was cussing me in English to let him know how pissed off he was at me. And, uh, I came back and I, I pleaded my case to Harley and he said, well, it's in their hands, you know, and for a year I didn't come back. And uh, they offered up to go to the dojo for me to go to the dojo for three months. And I said, oh, yeah, I'm going to jump on that. You know, anything I can to get my foot back in the door to go over there. And that three months led into six months. So. And when you returned, was there any, uh, you know, he from Akiyama, or was he okay with it? Um, he stayed away from me. You know, he didn't say nothing to me. He uh, he let me know he was angry and kept his distance. Actually, um I really didn't have a conversation with him about that until after I left after the, out of the dojo, went to WWE for almost four years, and then came back to wrestle for Noah after that. And him and I had a singles match. And uh, I remember looking at him, and I go, uh, tonight, uh, receipt? Oh, no, 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 no. I forget. I forget. No problem. <laughs> you know. Now, for him to know exactly what I was talking about when I came up to him and said, tonight, receipt, pointing at me, and for him to go, no, no, no. Obviously, it was still on his mind. It wasn't something that I had to refresh. Right, right. Hey, remember that time you and I were working and I potatoed you and knocked you out? No, there was none of that. He, no, no, we're okay. So, obviously, he remembered. And we worked a singles match that night, and it went fabulous. 
that is a, a great story, and obviously he is one of the uh, the greats over there in Japan as well. But there was another guy he actually ended up retiring this year, kind of unfortunately because he's so young. But Takeshi Morishima, you know what's your Morishima? Yeah, he's such a he was great. I mean, he even had a great run in Ring of Honor. I mean, he was just one of the best, but he kind of retired, you know, due to injury too soon. Well, it's nowadays with, you know, technology, we're able to find out if we've got major injuries now, whereas 10, 15 years ago, it was hard to, to do a concussion test and find out if a guy was hurt. Um, with technology, and, and guys aren't willing to risk their lives anymore uh, to, to take that last bump. And, I, I mean, I, I have to respect him on that. That was the man's livelihood. And I believe he stepped into more of an office role now with Noah, um, but to just walk away from your livelihood like that, obviously something extremely bad had to have happened, and, and there was some serious jeopardy with his career, not only his career, his life. Yeah, definitely uh, You know, sad to hear of uh, him kind of you know having to retire from the sport way early because he was definitely another great or you know, future great. But do you uh, have any aspirations of going back to Noah? Um, I, I do eventually, uh, I would, I know this may sound crazy, uh, but I was over there, uh, literally I was landing when that big, that big tsunami hit the last big one, Mm, the earthquake and all that. Um, my plane landed, I'm 10 feet from the terminal. My plane starts shaking. I see little Japanese people running out of the airport. I've already been on the airplane 14, 15 hours by now. I'm ready to get off. Uh, we ended up having to sit on that airplane for another seven hours after that, uh, just until they could inspect the airport to make sure it was okay for people to go into. Um, and with that, I drove, you know, we still did shows. And when you have images of body bags on the side of the road, blue body bags on the side of the road, and you see the carnage of people's lives ruined um, on top of the fact of the nuclear uh, situation over there, I'm, kind of hoping and wanting them to get all that a little bit more under control before I start going over there again. Um, it may sound crazy. It may sound weird. It may sound childish to some people, but I was the one over there for the earthquake. I was the one over there for all the carnage afterwards. And to see that I'm, I'm just not in a big rush to get myself stuck over there for two or three weeks. If that makes any sense at all. Oh, that makes perfect sense. Trust me, that visual enough is something that I don't think anybody, unless they see it with their own two eyes, uh, would ever want to uh, personally uh, imagine. But let's uh, let's lighten it up a little bit because that's uh, that's crazy enough. But you know, let's talk about. I mentioned the <laughs> yeah. tag team, of course. <laughs> I mentioned the tag team, of course, with uh, with Lance Cade, and we will get to that as well. But why don't we talk about the Dups? And I think everybody who's ever heard about the Dups has always wondered why they never got the shot that they wanted to necessarily see them get because for years and years and years, you always see, you know, you look up a WWE show and you see a dark match, you see the Dups. Or you look at an Ohio Valley wrestling card, you see the Dups. What was it like bringing the Dups together? How did you enjoy being the Dup? And, uh, you know, I, I don't know if I can just speak for myself, but I always want to see you guys get that big run on TV. Um, you know, when we got brought together on TNA, I was just excited the fact that I was on a groundbreaking, uh, the beginning of a groundbreaking wrestling program. Uh, to be honest with you, we had Vince Russo as our producer 99% of the time, and he really didn't give us a direction. It was, you know, be the be a backwoods redneck and be as off the wall as you can. 
and that's where the shaking came for me and the chew running down the middle of my lip and being afraid of midgets. That's just all, all silly stuff to just entertain the people. Um, I know that I had a good run with the Dups. I went to go leave. I told the office uh, three weeks before I was supposed to leave that I was going to Japan for the first time for three weeks. They were super excited, glad that I was going, glad that I gave them enough time to write me out of the show so they could write me back in. I went over and did my first three weeks of uh, uh, over in Japan, and I came back, and I could never get them to answer my phone calls after that. I don't know if in that three-week time span it was just easy to forget about us or what, but they would never answer our phone calls and never call us back. So I'm just as much uh, – <clears throat> I'm just as much – I've got just as much curiosity on why it didn't get a run that it was supposed to as you guys are. Now you mentioned, of course, the uh, you know the the name that sets off all the uh, the casino uh, you know the lottery machines and everything the slot machines the uh, the name of Vince Russo, and of course we know his antics for you know for maybe booking some some crazy stuff and you just mentioned being afraid of midgets that's definitely uh, up the old Vince Russo <laughs> alley. But <laughs> how was it working with Vince? And of course we know his crazy ideas and we've seen some of them come to TV. But uh, how was it working with him one on one? You know, I know that guy's got a bad reputation, and a lot of guys um, have have worked directly with him and, and have had negative interactions with him. My my direct contact with him was awesome. Anytime that I had an idea, he was open to it. He was very uh, very creative, helping me come up with things while we were talking about promos. I had a great business relationship with Vince Russo. It may catch me heat from some of the boys, but the truth of the matter is we did get along. And the guy was receptive to my ideas and wanted to see me grow and get bigger and, and do better things. So I, I really don't have a negative word about Vince Russo. My interactions with him were awesome. Yeah, and that's uh, it's really cool to hear because, you know, we do hear a lot of the, you know, anti-Russo sentiment. But you also do have the group of guys that do, you know, respect what he did. And obviously it's a thankless job. You know, nobody else can – all the armchair quarterbacks can say what they want. You know, you're not there at the end of the day making the decisions. But some of the things in that era of TNA were definitely uh, trying to be a little innovative, trying to maybe push the uh, the comedy envelope a little bit. But for somebody like yourself, who's just covered such a great background that you have as a wrestler and learning from Harley Race, how did you like doing the comedy and how did you like adjusting to that style? Well, it was a lot of, actually, it was a lot of fun because when you're working with Harley, it's a straight, straight PG show. There's no cussing. There's no hand gestures to the crowd. There's no grabbing the crotch. There's no, can't even say ass in a promo. I remember one time I was cutting this great promo first take and I happened to say ass in it and he'd stop, stop. <clears throat> I mean, do my heart. Stop, stop. God damn it. Stop, Trevor. Can't be saying ass on fucking promo. Yes, sir. <laughs> yes, sir. And, of course, it took me like 10 takes after that. So to go from a straight, you know, a very uh, straight-laced character to now I've got freedom to act like a goof and have some fun with it. There is no wrong way to carry yourself. There is no wrong way to do it. Really, you've got nothing but, you know, you've got no choice but to do great things. And um, I had a lot of fun with it, you know, to to just be creative. I, I enjoy being creative, not only in my matches, but when I do have a character I can sink my teeth into, I'll do some goofy shit. I mean, I'm not going to eat worms like the boogeyman, but I mean, I, I'll have some fun with it. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. 
No, without a doubt. And, of course, the eating the worms thing. I don't think we'd uh, – we want to see somebody like you uh, diving into those worms like the boogeyman. Because that's, uh, that's pretty horrifying. No, but then no. you have – yeah, you have things that, you know, TNA w- did manage to kind of get over. And you have stuff like the Duff Cup. You know, you have stuff like the, the, the matches with uh, York and Matthews. But what about TNA in that era? Did you feel really stood out to you about your time now really getting into the first, you know, big-time North American promotion? Um, at the time, just like now, there was too many chiefs, not enough Indians, too many guys that were able to, to make decisions, and then other people question those decisions, which makes it difficult for a wrestler or an entertainer, whatever you want to call us, because, you know, you tell us one thing and you give us a direction, we're going to go with it. If there's other people that are making those same decisions that don't like that, it tends to be trouble for your career because then they think you're going against them. It's too many chiefs, not enough Indian situation. And I think that's been a problem for them all along. Um, But other than that, I mean, I, it was an exciting time for me. I got to meet Toby Keith. I was on TV, uh, having great matches. Um, it was it was a really good uh, immersion into TV and, and being merged into that scenario and that situation. And it kind of gave me – I'm kind of thankful for that because with me not ever going into developmental, going straight from the independents to WWE TV, I at least had some sort of interaction with TV. End of it, so I had a little experience with knowing what to do and what not to do in front of the camera. And what's funny is with Jeff Jarrett, you know, we're seeing him and the newer fans are seeing how he's brought Global Force Wrestling to the forefront and he's doing it in a step-by-step process and we're seeing it all unfold and that's because of the power of social media in 2015 into 2016. But TNA was an unproven commodity with a completely different model of a weekly pay-per-view and that in itself is something that I don't think anybody could probably ever do again, especially on you know domestic pay-per-view. But what did you think about that model and the TNA weekly pay-per-views really giving you the time to digest what happened on one week and sometimes carry it over a two-week period before you actually did get to the match? I thought it was a great idea because bottom line is at the time, WWE pay-per-views were between 40 and $50. So you you could either buy one pay-per-view and watch three hours of wrestling all in one setting, or you could pay the exact same price and get four weeks of TV, one hour a show, but it's something that you constantly can keep coming back to and understand. Whereas when WWE does their pay-per-views, usually that's their blow-offs, and it's leading into another story. Um, so I, I thought it was a great, idea and it was a great opportunity for a customer for the fans to get more for their money um i don't think it worked out too well what that reason was i don't know but i think the business plan is a good idea definitely and obviously you know you leave tna but if i can just stay with tna you know briefly here because you know you did end up after your WWE run making a return so to speak in about 2009 ish somewhere around there but as Jethro Holiday, did you like your kind of return <laughs> to TNA and, and that strange name that they gave you? At the time, um, what's his name? He used to come out with Jack Swagger. Uh, he was the, the manager. I forgot Dutch. his name. Bill Dunn. Uh, Bill Dunn. Uh, Dutch Mantel. Uh, Dutch Mantel. There you go. Sorry, gentlemen. It was around the tip of my tongue. Dutch Mantel was there at the time um, helping with on the writing staff, and he thought that, 
I needed a, a little name to uh, something different to, to spice me up. And he came, you know, he took the Doc Holiday and Jethro Toll and threw them together. And that's where Jethro Holiday came. And to be honest with you, that if you look at the two stints between the first time I was in TNA and the second time, you'll be able to tell when someone actually gave a shit and gave me some direction. Because in the second time I was there, I just came there to wrestle. They didn't have me cut promos. I just came in there and I put over their, their top guys, which I was okay with. I I'm a, I understand that there's some guys in this business that are champions, and then there's guys that are putting those champions over. I understand my role in this business, and I'm, I'm okay with that. And so I was okay with making those guys look like a million dollars. And I was still having good matches. I got to work with Booker T. I got to work with Rhino. I did, I did a pay-per-view with Abyss. I worked with... Uh, uh, Raven in a clockwork orange match. I did an I quit match with Booker T did a hardcore match with Abyss. I mean, they were kind of just throwing me in randomly uh, to these matches that had, you know, I think they were trying to get some sort of oomph from and to get the guys over a little bit more. So there really wasn't too much of a character difference between Trevor Murdoch and Jethro holiday. If you look at them. It's just Jethro Holiday was a lot, I think, more serious and quiet. And obviously Murdoch was just off the wall, but crazy goof redneck. Hmm. Very, very true. And obviously, you know, I definitely have one thing in common that you were kind of under the radar there and basically underused. And then they even teamed you up with Eric Young, who at that point was another guy that was kind of underused and underutilized. Did you like that pairing? Because it seemed like a very underrated tag team. Um, yeah, Eric was, you know, Eric's an awesome guy. Anybody that's ever spent five minutes with Eric Young knows that he's just an awesome dude. Not to mention the guy's extremely creative when it comes to being in the ring. And he's a hell of a wrestler, um, and entertainer. So no, I, I thought it was, you know, I was super stoked. I, I, I thought we could completely get this character, this gimmick over, but then again, TNA didn't put much emphasis on it. It just kind of went away. Very true. You definitely got to wrestle some good tag teams. I mean, the, the beer monies of the world, who, you know, obviously they're back now. If anybody's still following TNA, they're back together now. Uh, Team 3D, and then even uh, No Limit from Japan. So did you like yes. some of those tag matches that you were wrestling in, even though despite they kind of weren't using you, you know, high profile? Yeah, no, I had a good time with them. Um, it's just hard to compare any any other tag match, any other partner, compare it to Cade. Uh, Kate and I had a great chemistry as friends, as, as, as coworkers, as guys in the ring, I could look at that dude and he would know as I, what I was thinking and vice versa. He would know what I was thinking and we gelled very well together. Um, so it's, it's hard to put a comparison against, you know, any other team, you know, when we've had so much success, Kate and I had so much success. Um, and that was because we were not only a good team, you know, in the ring, but we were friends outside of the ring too, and tried to look out for each other's best interests. Now, in OVW, did you, when you first met Lance Kay, was that the actual first meeting him, and then they kind of put you together as a team TNT, or did you know each other no. prior to that? No, I I never met Lance until I got brought up to TV. I went. Um, I just gotten out of the dojo for uh, six months out of Noah Dojo. Harley had gotten me a tryout with WWE, and I had been there eight or nine times before. And I, you know, always got the uh, "we'll give you a call," you know, pat on the back. And so I really didn't 
care about WWE. I was just glad that I was going to have an opportunity to make another 250 bucks, eat some badass catering, and then hang out with some of the boys in the back. I really, when I got back from Japan, I was in the best shape of my life. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to see if I was eye-to-eye with Triple H. I wanted to stand as he walked by and just give him, you know, a very casual, hello, how you doing? And have him turn to look at me and see if I was as tall as he was. Because I knew if I was as tall as he was, I could look as big as he is. And sure enough, he comes walking down the hallway, and I go, hello, how you doing? My name's Trevor, nice to meet you. And he turns and looks, and we are eye to eye, and I go, I got this, motherfucker. I got this guy. <laughs> and <clears throat> so uh, I'm in the ring. I got just doing some stretches, and I see Chris Benoit out there doing his squats. The guy was a nut. He'd do 500 squats before every show. did not matter what show, he did 500 squats. So I'm in the ring doing some of my Japanese stretches, trying to get his attention because I know he's really over in Japan. He's friends with Harley. He's friends with New Japan at the time. Uh, and I did. I got his attention. He came over and he asked me, he goes, you know, uh, have you been to Japan? And I was like, sir, I just got back from six months in the dojo. Who trained you? Harley Race. Uh, what company? Noah. Um, and I just laid my resume out. He goes, do you have a match tonight? I said, no, sir. He said, all right, stay right here, and I'll be right back. And 10 minutes later, he'd come back, and he's like, all right, kid, you got a match tonight. They're going to be watching. You better show them what you got. And I went from not giving a shit to now I have the attention of the people I've been trying to get for the last five years to be watching me. Now I have it. Uh, so I went out, and I wrestled a match with Rob Conway. I had a great match. Come in the back, Rob put me over to Johnny Ace. Johnny Ace asked me to come back the next night to SmackDown. I worked with Rene Dupree, and uh, they told Rene to go 50-50 with me to see what kind of offense I had. And we had a great match again. And uh, I'm in the back of the locker room, and Johnny comes up to me and goes, I need to talk to you when uh, you get done. I get done, I go to his office, and, uh, you know, he's asking me just some minor questions, and he finally, you know, pops out, do you want to work here? And I couldn't even open up the word yes. I just shook my head. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, he goes, well, I can tell you're a little speechless. I was like, just tell me what I got to do. And uh, he goes, give me your name and address, and I'll have a contract sent out. And literally, that contract didn't make it out past the, the signatures on the FedEx box. I pulled <laughs> it out just far enough to sign it shove it back in just in case Johnny had a brain fart that night when he decided to hire me. I wasn't going to give him a chance to screw it up. And uh, Johnny said, I'll, um, I'm going to send you, I want you down in OVW in four weeks and uh, we're going to have you start training down there. So I said, okay. I came home, told my wife, so we're moving. And okay. And we're packing up. And about two weeks later, I get a call from Johnny Ace and he says, okay, Hey, we're going to bring you up to TV on uh, Monday and Tuesday. I'm going to have you do two dark matches we're going to have you tag with Lance, this guy, Lance Cade, and see how you guys look as a team. And then next week, Lance is going to tag with Kevin Thorne, the gentleman who ended up doing the vampire gimmick, and see what those two look like as a tag team. Because apparently, Kevin Thorne and Lance were the original. That was for, It was for them. They came up with the idea. So uh, I came in. I wrestled you know, a dark match Monday night. I wrestled a dark match uh, SmackDown with Lance on Tuesday. And as we were coming to the back, Johnny, you know, went right up to us and said, Lance, I need to know now. You've wrestled with Kevin down in OVW. You wrestled with Trevor the last two nights. I need to know who do you think you'd have a better tag team with. And um, 
you know, I've got to give Lance credit right then and there. He could have picked Kevin. They were friends. They were buddies. But he said, Johnny, I think I got better chemistry with Trevor. I think we'd be a better tag team. And Johnny goes, awesome. You guys are on the road next week. And that's exactly how it all came about. <laughs> I was that next week. I'm tagging with Lance. And we had a big conversation that night um, when Johnny said we were going to be a tag team. We got in the car and rode to the hotel. And we just had, you know, we just broke it down. You know, eventually WWE is going to break us up. And we know that. So we just need to make sure that we're honest with each other now. And don't let nobody stab us in the back. If we're upset and angry about something, bring it to the car so the wrong person doesn't see it and misunderstand it. And that's how Kate and I had our business relationship. I mean, we were we were calm, happy. Um, we let nothing affect us until we got in the car and we could look at each other and start bitching to each other. Can you believe this son of a bitch? But it was only me and Kate in the car, so it didn't matter what we said, you know. Um WWE was putting two guys together to try to make a million, and they ended up putting two guys that became brothers. My kids, you know, called him uncle. His kids called me uncle. They, he would come down to Christmas parties for with me and uh, you know, Harley's Christmas parties. WWE even let him come down while we were tag champs and did a show as the WWE tag champs for Harley. Um, he was my best friend. He was my bro. I miss that guy every day. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely it's such a loss, uh, especially for somebody like yourself who had such a close bond with him. And we definitely are going to get into uh, to Lance Cade in just a minute. But you know, the the thing with those vignettes that you guys had was that it was almost like they were trying to rebuild that tag division that I think the fans were clamoring for some kind of just reorganization of tag team wrestling in the WWE. When you think about their history and you think about the different eras that had this just wealth of tag teams. And here come Cade and Murdoch and the vignettes in the bars and the beating up the you know the the guys in the bars, such a cool, such a different thing, kind of a throwback. But for that era, was definitely something that stood out. But how were putting those vignettes together? Did you guys film them all in one shot, or was this something that was kind of like a, a process? We actually um, the first three vignettes we filmed in in Texas at a, at a bar that Lance knew that let us kind of have free run for the day. Um, we did the vignettes where, you know, I'm beating up a guy playing, you know, after we were playing pool and I headbutted a guy and all those guys we beat up on, on those vignettes and poor bastards. We had to legitimately lay that stuff in cause we had Bruce Pritchard there and he's like, listen guys, there's nothing to cover up any of this. There's no ropes. There's no nothing. So you're going to have to just apologize to him now. And those guys weren't even getting paid. They were just happy to be there and excited to just be a part of it. And Lance and I kicked the crap out of like six guys that whole day. And Lance and I ended up going to the bank and pulling out a hundred bucks for each guy and gave it to them. And they were just thankful just to get their butts whooped and be a part of a vignette. We do the vignettes. We think they're great. We think that they're awesome. Uh, we do one in Tootsie's, the Nashville bar, uh, went really well. Um, we get back and Vince hates all three of them. They aired them, but Vince hates them. He won't, he won't put us on TV until we get new vignettes. Well, we get lucky enough where Hunter steps in and says, I'll be the producer for the vignettes. So those last vignettes of us at, actually standing at the bar and us talking to the camera is actually in, in Canada. And behind the camera is Triple H, you know, producing us. So that was really cool for us, for him to step in and say, I'll work with these guys and try to make it better. And sure enough, you know, the vignettes went, spectacular and that's what they aired and we came out like a house fire 
Yeah, it was so cool. And just to think back, you know, with that being 10, 11 years ago already, that Triple H, you know, taking the hand and producing is uh, is definitely something that really stands out because obviously we all know his ascension to his spot that he has today and what he's been doing with WWE Developmental. But how about Triple H as a, a backstage presence and being able to step in there and produce a vignette, but as well as keep up at that point a pretty uh, stringent schedule as a talent. But uh, how was he, you know, besides just producing the vignettes, how was he backstage with all the boys? He was awesome. I mean, I, I'm sure guys, again, other guys might have had bad bad interactions with him. But, I, I mean, we always got along with him. I could always come up to him and ask him ideas. Uh, I remember one time he invited Lance on Lance and I onto his bus to watch an old-school black-and-white uh, match of, of uh, Dusty Rhodes and Dickie Murdoch when they were the Texas Outlaws uh, just to try to help us move along and try to help elevate us and get better in the ring. Um, he was always, you know, he invited us to go to the gym with him. The same way with Shawn Michaels. You know, those guys just became peers. They weren't you know, the heartbreak kid or the game, they were just, you know, Hunter and Sean. They were real open with us and, and tried to help us get better. And, and they, they you know, <clears throat> I don't know about so much Hunter, but I know Sean went to bat for us quite a few times because a lot of the writers up there have no idea when it comes to a redneck country boy. Uh, when they hear country, they think of deliverance, you know, and really no idea. So it was it was nice to have Sean go in there and fight for us a little bit and, and not try to, because there was a lot of times the writers wanted to make us just, just like deliverance. I mean, backwoods, dumb idiots that did things to animals just for their kicks. And that was not what we wanted at all. Not on the national stage like that at all. I can't, uh, I can't imagine why, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. no, it's funny. You guys were such a great play off one another with him, you know, having the cowboy hat and the big physique and really, you know, being the, you know, just like the muscle guy. And then you, of course, with the redneck and the chew and the hat and the vest. And it was such a great, you know, duo that you guys were able to play off one another. But when you got to the main roster and you're finally, you're, you know, you're now you're on TV and you look at that tag team division. And like I said, trying to strengthen it with those vignettes, trying to build up new teams. But what did you think about the tag division at that point? And obviously other great teams, but just it seemed like they just got to a certain point with everybody and they just kind of dropped it. Well, it's the tag team division has been struggling for years. They They tend to give it a boost and then they just – I don't know. They just tend to forget about it, and then they want to know why they have such a weak tag team division. Right now, the tag team division is in a big push. It's being elevated. It's being put on TV. Um, WWE doesn't. They're they don't like tag teams for the simple fact is they don't really know what to do with them anymore. When you have people that aren't in wrestling that haven't been in wrestling and they're writing a wrestling program, you can't fully expect those guys to understand what to do with the characters that are on the program. Um, and I think that's what a big issue is, is lack of knowledge of the business when it comes to tag teams and not knowing what to do with them. One big time tag team that you guys ended up feuding with for a while. And we just talked about it a little bit with triple H and Shawn Michaels, obviously, they reformed DX, and you guys had a little bit of a feud there. What was it like, you know, getting in, working with those guys? Because they were pretty over, obviously, as Degeneration X. Um, we it, actually, it was probably some, between working them and the Hardys. It's probably some of the funnest times I've had in the business because 
when those guys walk out, they get such a reaction, they're already so over. Anytime we're in control and we're beating them up, we get heat, and so it makes our job ten times easier. But was also fun, too, as those guys let us take control of the match. You know, um, I remember one time we were in the ring, all four of us getting ready to start a match. It was a house show, and uh, Sean's yelling at us, telling us what he's going to do. And Lance looks straight over at him and says, we're the fucking heels. We'll tell you what to do. Shut up and listen. And they both started laughing and said, okay. So we got in the ring and those guys let us do what we wanted. You know, they were they were confident in their abilities and who they were. And they were confident in us that we were going to go out there and not go out there and try to run them over and make them, you know, we wanted to make them look good. And they did. They let us work. They let us go out there. And they, when we got in the back, they would come up to us and they would tell us what we needed to work on, what they thought was good, what we needed to expand on. And that kind of knowledge is priceless, man. I mean, we're talking to the top guys in the business. And for them to be coming back there telling us what we needed to do to get better and giving us advice, I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. Definitely. And, and like you said, the Hardy Boys, another team that you guys worked that was super over. But another team you guys worked uh, that is completely different and the completely different end of the spectrum just because of sheer size was uh, Big Show and Kane. Was it fun wrestling those guys? Or, they, or was it like almost a little tough because they're so big? Um. It was in the beginning of our, you know, my time at WWE. So to be honest with you, I didn't know those guys very well. So to be honest, with you, I was scared. I was scared out of my mind. I mean, what am I going to do with two guys that just, I mean, are so big and strong? You can't do anything unless they say okay. So in, in, in that match, you know, I went in kind of hesitant because it's not only a regular match, but it's a hardcore match. I got to hit these guys with heavy objects and then expect them not to want to rip my head off intentionally. Um, so it was a little bit nerve-wracking um, on top of the fact we knew we were losing the titles. We didn't quite understand why we only had them for four weeks and they were going to take them off of us. We didn't, it didn't seem to make sense to us. So we were, we thought, you know, I guess we're in the doghouse, but nobody was telling us anything. Um, but it, in the same sense, it was exciting to get in the ring with Big Show and Kane. I mean, that's, those are matches that I can put under my belt and look at some, you know, 90% of the guys that got there go, you've never been in the ring with those two ever, not even one of them. So it's nice to have that under my belt as well, too. When you guys actually did win the tag titles, obviously you ended up losing them to Big Show and Kane, but when you actually end up winning the WWE tag titles, was that kind of like a sense of, wow, we, we've made it at this point? Were you, you know, super excited with your run at the WWE? I, I was, you know, um, Lance had been around the WWE longer and knew that it was just another stepping stone. But for me, it was huge vindication um, coming from, you know, being the first guy out of Harley's camp to make it on to a, you know, to get a WWE contract and then to go up and, and to become a champion on TV. It's extremely uh, vindicating for me to be able to come home and lay the tag title on Harley's desk and go, this is where all that hard work and you've been investing in me. This is where it's went. Um, so it was it was super exciting and super cool to be, you know, I'm not only a champion, but I'm also a champion of the, the number one wrestling company in the world. And those are things that, you know, no one can ever take away from you. Well, I guess Vince could. He did it to Benoit and Hogan for a while. So <laughs> I guess he could take it away. But <clears throat> you never very, know where I'm going, though. Oh, yeah, yeah. Very, very true. But, you know, definitely awesome to be a tag champ. And at that point, you guys had some good teams, you know, to work with as well. I mean, even a more like jokey team, but ended up, you know, behind the mask, behind the gimmick, they're actually two pretty good wrestlers, and that's Hurricane and Rose. Yes. 
Um, you know, uh, both those guys, you know, extremely talented individuals. I think they were a little angry that uh, two green guys, not I wouldn't say green guys, but two fresh guys of the company are coming right in and beating them and taking the belts. I don't think Rosie, uh, I don't think it bothered Rosie as much as it bothered Hurricane. Um, we had a couple, you know, uh, backstage arguments with that guy trying to overrun us in the ring when he shouldn't have been. Uh, for example, I was working with Arn Anderson uh, before the shows, and uh, I was I stepped in and I put a guy into an abdominal stretch. And if you know what that move is, you've got the guy's leg hooked, you've got one arm around his arm, and you've got basically his whole body stretched out. And what a lot of guys like to do is give it, the guy that's in the abdominal stretch likes to give his opponent a hip toss out of that. And uh, I was working with Arn, and Arn said, that makes no sense. Don't ever do it. You, you know, you'd be an idiot if you ever let anybody do it to you. Sure enough, that night I'm wrestling Hurricane, and I step in and I put him in an abdominal stretch. And he keeps looking up at me, and he goes, I'm going to hip toss you. I said, no. I'm going to hip toss you. I said, no. Now, I've got Hurricane beat by probably 75, 80 pounds, if not more. And I finally, I just get mad, and I throw him down, and I start putting the fucking boots to him. Shut up. Hmm. He, back. he comes flying through the curtain. Who the F do you think you are? I've been wrestling for 15 years. And uh, I asked him, I was like, man, aren't you only like 25 or 26, 27 maybe at most? I said, so you were in the ring at 12? I was like, come on, <laughs> let's be realistic here. I said, I was told by Arn not to do that, and I'm not going to do it. And about that time, my partner comes through the curtain. You no good motherfucker. Don't talk to him like that. He was doing right. We're the heels. You fucking listen to us, and you do what we fucking tell you. And that's, <laughs> that, we had a couple spats like that uh, to the point where Big Show had to get up and say, yo, Hurricane, these guys are right. Shut up. Hmm. You know, it's. Did, was that like a common occurrence, like, um, kind of maybe any squabble that you guys would have in the back would you know would Lance have your back and you would have his back no matter what? That was that was protocol. Um actually we kind of got a reputation around the locker room and when we when we would go out was if you didn't see one, you need to look around because the other one wasn't too far behind trailing. We were the classic old school tag team. I mean literally if I flew into the town first at I would wait at the airport until Cade got in. We'd hop in a rental car. We'd share hotel rooms. When you when we'd go out, you seen him and I together. When you seen one, you seen the other. Um, I remember one time, it was uh, when Road Dog Jesse James and Billy Gunn kind of had a falling out with WWE. We were doing a show, and they were doing an autograph signing in the same town, um, and it gotten back to Triple H that. Uh, Road Dog and Billy Gunn said they were when Triple H goes to have his match, they're going to hit the ring. So Hunter comes up to Cade and I and says, "Listen, uh, you guys need to watch my match tonight." And of course, we're you know, young guys. Of course, Hunter, we watch your match every night. <laughs> we don't miss. We don't <laughs> miss a one, brother. <laughs> and he goes, "Now come on, quit kissing my ass here." All right, all right well, let's be serious. For me. He goes, "Listen, this is the deal." They said, "You know, they're in town." They said they're going to hit the ring when my match. <clears throat> when I go out for my match. I want you guys looking through the curtain. And as soon as those two guys step over the ring, you boys get out there and start eating at lunch. And this is, we know this is going to be soon to be the boss of the whole company, married to Stephanie, Triple H the game. We were stoked. We were like, oh, yes, we are going to be fucking somebody up tonight. <laughs> and uh, that was the kind of reputation that we had that, you know, we would work with people, but if, 
if you push too far, we would lay the wood to you and let you know that this is not going to go the way you think it is. And that's the reputation we had. It wasn't a bad one. Uh, no one messed with us because they knew that, it, like I said, if you messed with one, the other one wasn't too far behind to club you from behind. I love that. Uh, that's actually a great reputation to have, and I love that you guys took it so seriously as far as being an old-school tag team. Was there any kind of influence of, like, an old-school tag team? Was it just, you know, basically like a Rhodes and a Murdoch, or was there maybe the Andersons or something you guys kind of looked at and was like, man, these guys definitely influenced me? We, I mean, Arn was a big influence. Dusty was a big influence for us, and, and obviously Harley was a big influence for me. Arn was was our go-to guy. Um, when we had to start wrestling the Highlanders, we're talking about guys that are a foot shorter than us, and we've probably got by a hundred by a hundred pounds on both of them. We didn't know what to do with them to help get those guys over. So at the Hall of Fame, we sat down on the steps right next to Arn, and we just laid it out there and explained to him, "We're confused. We're not sure what to do." And Arn made us feel like the biggest idiots in the world. He looks at us and he goes, boys, I'd work them like the sheep herders if I was you. You boys know who the <laughs> sheep herders are? Absolutely, oh, yeah. the bushwhackers. When the bushwhackers, little, right. A little tougher, yeah. As soon as he said that to us, it clicked. Okay, okay, that's all right. Now everything started. And we started coming up with gimmick stuff for them. You know, they're double, you know, one would grab the other one by the trunks and, and the back of the head and, and ram into, the, you know, either me or Cade and, we did their gimmicks, you know, sunset flip. One would lift up the skirt and then drop down. And, you know, shit that we thought would be entertaining but still fit their character and their gimmicks. So it, we were constantly, and if we weren't working with them, working with Crime Time, working with the Hardys, we were going back to Arn going, how can we make get this match over the best way possible? And how can we all look good doing it um, and still tell a story in six minutes most of the time? <laughs> hmm. That's great. And now when you're working with like a team who are just two great but smaller guys like London and Kendrick, would Arn almost tell you you got to work on like the Rockers? Or what would he give you kind of a, no, and, his advice Now, there? see, when it comes to guys like those two, we didn't have to go to Arn because those guys were so creative, number one. Number two, they knew the fact that they were cruiserweights working with two heavyweights. So on the psychology end of it, they knew that they were going to get pummeled most of the time as long as they were able to get their comeuppance. And in that situation, that's that's what you got to do. You know what I mean? It's yep. um, And those guys, you know, we would bounce throw ideas at them. They're like, yeah, that's great. We'll do this, this, and then we can fire back with this. And it all made sense. When you have good workers that are creative and put some time in this business, I'm not saying you don't need to go to Arn, but I only would go to Arn when I, when I couldn't come up with something myself or something didn't sound right or something didn't feel right. He was my sounding board. He was the guy that, that I would go to and go, I'm not going to look stupid doing this, am I? Well, hell yeah, you're going to look stupid. Do it this way. Yes, sir. <laughs> That's great to be able to go to such a you know all-time great, all-time legend like Arn and be able to, to go and do that. But it was kind of cool at that point that they were kind of emphasizing more on the tag division. Because like you said, you had the cr- a crime time, the Hardys, DX at a point. Obviously, London and Kendrick... Uh, had a long run with uh, their tag belt. But did you feel like at that point, like, you know, you guys are part of, like, the new tag team revolution that you're turning the corner and it's almost like the 80s and the early 90s again with great tag teams? We, yes. Um, they were starting to give us longer and longer matches on the pay-per-view. 
on the pay-per-views, which told us that they were confident that we could carry that time and still bring the numbers that they needed. Um, wrestling in itself will work. It will it will entertain the crowd. It will keep them in, enthralled, and they will come back to buy a ticket again if you do it right. And they were kind of giving us freedom to go out there and go, boys, just go out there and, and steal the show tonight. And when you have that confidence not only in yourself but from the office, it makes you feel like a million bucks and you can go out there and you really can't do any wrong. And that's why Cade and I would go out there with guys like the Hardys and we started off with 15 minutes and went to 20 minutes, the next pay-per-view, 25 to the next pay-per-view. It was We were able to keep the people for almost three months just locked into that storyline with the Hardys. That was another, obviously, you know, great feud you guys had. But kind of when it came down to, I mean, you guys had three tag team title runs and a WWF there, but kind of when it came down to break you guys up as a team, were you disappointed with that? Did you kind of think that you guys had a lot more to give as a tag team? Um, I knew that we had kind of run our course. My idea was that they didn't have to split us up. They didn't have to do the the normal, oh, man, I'm now upset with something he's doing that he's been doing every other time, but now it bothers me. Now we're not friends, and I don't like you, and we're going to split up. I thought that was generic, stupid, and I thought it was hokey. I was like, why don't you just let us go off, and we can still be friends. I guess you guys did it with DX. I'm not saying we're over, you know, we're DX over, but you could have split us up and let us have our own singles run, and when you needed to put us back together, you could just, just like you did with the Hardys, you could quickly throw us back together and put us in a tag team situation, whatever you needed to fit for the show. I didn't think that they needed to split us up. I thought Cade and I were on our own. We're still two different characters that looked really well together. He was still the jacked up pretty boy cowboy, but I was still the crazy pissed off redneck. We we fit well together, but you also had two separate wrestlers. Whereas when you had teams like Eminem, you could literally take one of those wrestlers away and still have the same guy. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm not saying that the, the talent was the same, but the look, the wrestling, the way they wrestled together, it was the same. And so, I mean, I, that's what bothered me. And then when they did, you know, split us up, they, they gave us like two or three weeks, didn't even give us a pay-per-view match. I mean, we were been tag team champions three different times, been together for three years, and we're not even worth giving a pay-per-view. Uh, hell, they gave Crime Time a pay-per-view strap match, and them guys never even won the damn titles. It was definitely uh, it was definitely questionable, especially uh, you know as a seeing a singles run coming for you guys. I mean, I don't know if I would have flipped the roles or, or what, but obviously the the kind of cool part was when you did break up. Uh, we learned that Trevor Murdoch had a very unique talent, and that was he had a hell of a singing voice. And as you guys were breaking <laughs> up, and that was pitched to you, uh, what did you think about that whole thing? Because it was, yet again, we talked about comedy earlier. It was another side. We saw that your, uh, your character was quite an, uh, a lovely voice you had there. Well, thank you. Thank you. I was the one that actually pitched it to the company. Um, we knew that Kate and I were on the splits bill. The way they were writing the show, it looked like you know they were going to split Kate and I up. So I knew I needed a niche, something to stand out. So uh, when Cade and I had some off time, we would have a couple alcoholic beverages and hit these karaoke bars. Well, when you're when you have alcohol in your system, it tends to let you do things you wouldn't normally do. Well, I would get up there and sing karaoke and goof off and have a good time. Well, when we realized that they were going to split us up, K 
Kate even brought up, because you ought to say something about your singing. And I said, Lance, I don't know what the hell I'm going to do with that. I was like, I mean, I really don't know. He goes, yeah, you may not know. Somebody else might know, but they need to know that you can at least do that. And I said, okay. So I knew the only person that I could honestly get it across to was Vince. So I start this whole process all day. I'm, I'm tracking Vince like a pedophile. I'm just talking to him. <laughs> and every, every time I get close to come talk to him, somebody come up, talk to him, and I have to hide behind the bleachers or something because I didn't want him thinking I was staring at him. I finally follow him into his office, and I have to lean up against the door. In, I, I Literally, I walk right in behind him. I don't knock or nothing. I just shut the door, and I lean up against the door because people are trying to get in to talk to him, and I just need five minutes of his time. And I just spit it out right there. I go, Vince, I know you're splitting me and Lance up. I said, I've, you know, in my off time, I tend to go to karaoke bars and, and I sing and I have a good time. I said, I don't know exactly what we can do with it, but here we go. And I just, I was so nervous. I sat, I sang a song acapella right there to Vince in his office. And there's like this 60 second pause from the time I stopped singing to he actually answers. And of course it felt like three hours. I'm thinking, oh God, he's firing me. I'm, I'm done. This stupidest idea I've ever come up with in my life. I'm an idiot. And I get the complete opposite reaction. God damn it, Trevor, that was great. We're gonna we're gonna put that on TV next week. Son of a bitch, you should have told me this sooner, Trevor. We're gonna do something with this. And I was so excited that he didn't think I was an idiot and was gonna fire me that I was like, "Thank you, Vince. This is awesome." And I get out and I leave his office and I go, "Well, hell, I didn't figure out what the hell I'm gonna do with it now. I didn't even talk to him about it. I was just so so happy that he didn't fire me. That and that next week I'm standing on the announcer's table." singing to my tag team partner yes you were singing friends in low places and it's uh it's quite the rendition a, a stirring rendition of friends <laughs> in low places <laughs> if you know the song of course uh, if you don't go look up the video because it is uh it's quite entertaining but you know you talk about the single run that you did have how did you feel about going singles after being in the tag that long and obviously you didn't get the match with Cade that you should have on on a pay-per-view but you did manage to have some pretty decent little uh, TV matches uh, in the singles run, but how was that transitioning back to being a single star? Well, I had been a singles wrestler majority of my career, so when I when I came up to be a tag team, I had to I didn't have to relearn all of that stuff, but I had to focus more on it. And then to switch, you know, when you go switch from a tag team to a single star, everything's based on your own merit, and there's no time to think about things. So you got to be quick off the draw. I was lucky enough to get Chavo Guerrero on the house shows and Chavo would work with me um, just to try to, you know, be a little bit more aggressive on things, you know, work on. Nowadays, most wrestlers have high spots they hit in every match. You know, people can call them as soon as I start to, you know, get set up. If you watch me work, the only high spot I have is the inverted big boot. Everything else is just wrestling. Stuff comes out of nowhere. I hit people with big stuff out of nowhere. Nothing's ever the same. So it was. It took me a little while to get adjusted, but once I did, I was ready to go. I mean, they were starting to push me towards an IC run with Flair, and somehow that petered out out of nowhere too. So I don't. But that's how WWE works. Now, yeah, that was uh, that's definitely something I wanted to uh, really kind of pick your brain about, and that was. You know, obviously, Ric Flair, and funny enough, as the Intercontinental Champion uh, at that point, something about that doesn't seem right, but it, nonetheless, it did happen. But your history with Harley and, of course, Flair's history with Harley, how was it working with the Nature Boy one-on-one, especially in a singles match? 
Oh well, I you know the first time I worked with him, I was I was nervous. It was like I was my first match again because I had been spending all these years watching tapes of Harley and Flair, Harley and Flair, Harley and Flair, and finally I'm in the ring. I actually called Harley up before once I found out I had the match. I was like, well now there's only there's only there's going to be two people in that school that's wrestled Flair, you and me, and. uh he thought that was pretty cool, and it was exciting for me to actually get in the ring with him and and work live events with him and and learn from him as well too, because he's got a different style and a different pace than everybody else, and you've got to be able to know and, and do all of that. So, I was just a fanboy, <laughs> excited. I'm working the nature boy. No, it's uh, that's got that's so cool, and yeah, that is a great point that you and Harley, the uh, the only two from that school to uh, to wrestle Flair at that point, but you know another guy. With that NWA lineage is Dusty Rhodes. We mentioned it before, but how about as being Trevor Rhodes and being able to work both Cody and Goldust? I, I, you know, I got to work with um, with Goldust before he went back for a second run with WWE. So I had I got a chance to sit down and talk to him a little bit and kind of feel you know get a feel with him because I've been running around using their last name for for years. Um, and Harley had called Dusty and, and kind of let him know what was going on and, and kind of in a roundabout way asked his permission. Um, but, you know, Cody, I had just, you know, I'd heard I'd heard about Cody through all the years. He was, you know, he was too young to be in the business. And to finally get in the ring with him, um, it felt good that I was kind of being able to mentor him a little bit because he was still green as grass when he came into WWE. And then to be tagged up with Bob Holly, who Bob's a great guy. But if he doesn't know you, he's a little tough to work with sometimes. And for him to have to work with Bob when he first comes in, I knew there was a lot of stress, not to mention to have the Rhodes name. So it was nice to come in to be able to kind of help him along and, and give him stuff in a match that he wasn't really expecting and how I could make him look good because we all knew what, what you know Cody's direction was. And, you know, I just wanted to help progress that. Very, very cool, and then obviously, you know, um, I'm not sure, did Harley give you the name of Trevor Rhodes when you were in WLW, or is that something that you wanted to be? I had did Trevor Rhodes before I even met Harley on the independent scene when I was the shitty of shitty workers, and uh, <laughs> when I met Harley, I, I did, a, my brother was in a tag team, and his tag partner shit out him, so he needed a tag partner, so I dyed my hair. I uh, put on a tie-dye shirt and became a tag team of bodily harm with my legit brother. And we did two shows for Harley. And uh, the second show was in Eldon, and I got to wrestle One Man Gang, which that was I was stoked about that, just being a, a fan of his as well, too. And uh, it's funny how karaoke leads into this. But we all go to uh, a bar here in Eldon after the show, and we were still kind of green as grass when it came to getting to know Harley and spending time with him. This was our first real big outing. So we get a couple shots in me, and I get up there, and Harley's got his back to me, and I start singing karaoke. And uh, he turns around real slow, and he stares at me the whole time as I'm singing. I get done with the song, and he you know, puts up his finger and motions me to come over. And he goes, God damn it, kid, that was great. He goes, didn't you do a Rhodes gimmick before you came to me? And I said, yes, sir. He goes, you're going to be my singing fucking cowboy. That's right. You're going to sing your fucking entrance music to the ring. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, that never came to pass, but I became Trevor Rhodes again that day. And that's the next, uh, that next week, BJ's making me green trunks with a horseshoe on them. And I'm buying a vest and a cowboy hat. 
That's awesome. And I'm surprised Harley liked it. I, I thought you were going to say Harley hated it. <laughs> no, no, no. He loved it. That, that is great. And uh, obviously, you know, the, the singing gimmick was kind of cool, and that story is great. But is there a story behind that movie critic gimmick they kind of gave you? They kind of made you like <laughs> a redneck critic. I have, you know what? I wish I had a spectacular story, but literally I'm at TV one day and they had just split Lance and I up. And I think they were just trying to get me on TV, doing something to keep me out there. And one of the producers come up and go, you know what? You're going to do a movie review today. And I was like, okay, uh, what movie? And I forgot what it was, but I hadn't even seen it yet. And I said, okay, I got to give a movie review about something I haven't seen. Oh, don't worry. Don't worry. The writers are writing something up. And, I did the first one, and apparently it cracked up Vince and everybody. They thought it was hilarious. So that next week, um, they put Dusty with me as the, my producer. And uh, I forgot. I think we were – I think the movie was uh, – they had me doing a, a talk about a TV show this time, Shogun. And uh, it had a little Chinese boy in it, Hop Sing or something like that. And I just remember, like, Dusty, you know, always, you know, he's pushing me, going, Trevor, make sure you tell him you love Hop Sing. You love, love Hop Sing. <laughs> and uh, it, it, what he was trying to do is give me this creepy feel, you know what I mean? And uh, then the next week, they were like, you're going to do a uh, movie review on Brokeback Mountain. And I was like, guys, like, I've heard some stuff about this movie. I was like, I need to at least go watch this stuff. Oh, nope, nope, we're doing it today. Like, no one could have gave me a call yesterday, day before, Trevor, you need to go watch this movie. So I do a movie review and I push it the Brokeback Mountain as a love story that people are highly confused on what's going on. And they can't understand the fact of love between two cowboys, which is completely against my character, but I did it to entertain. <laughs> and, and just as quickly as movie reviews came in, they were gone just as quick. I don't know where up. Oh, nope. We're not gonna do them today. And I was like, okay. And never did them again. Why they had me do them, I have no idea. I have no, no one has told me to this day, but they were fun. I got to do some goofy shit. It was easy, still got paid. So, and the only bump, you know, the only thing that's bad about it is that I, I most likely didn't work on Raw if I'm doing a movie review. <laughs> hmm, true. Now, you said, you know, you kind of have to listen to the writers and stuff. A normal day at Raw, let's just say, you know, you're in a tag match or whatever's going on and they give you guys a promo. Is it something you have to stick to the script, like, specifically, or can you almost ad-lib a little bit? If they don't know you, they want you to stick to script. If they're not comfortable with you and your character and hasn't really gotten over, they want you to stick to script. But after, you know, after some time and people, your character starts coming out, they'll write something down for you, but you kind of read through it and grab the bullet points and make it your own. Um, I think nowadays WWE is kind of, you know, curtailing that a little bit, being a little bit too much hands-on. Um, when you let guys just go, we'll give, we'll just throw an example out there. The rock, just let him do his thing and he will get that shit over. If they would let some of their guys just do their thing and be creative and not be so stifled. I think there would be a lot more creative stuff on TV and we'd be able to see a lot more cooler stuff. Way better promos. Nonetheless, at, at the very least. Definitely. Do you, uh, you watch current like wrestling? Do you watch raw still or no? I, I DVR it and you know, I'll skim through it. Uh, and and watch what I like and what I don't like. If you know, if I see a good wrestling match on, I'll stop and watch it. If I see, you know, majority of the bad thing about Raw is you know the first thirty minutes of it you can miss. 
because there's going to be guys talking. And that, I mean, you, that sucks. There needs to be more wrestling on a wrestling program. But, you know, they they obviously know what they're doing up there. They're, they're okay with the ratings going down and going up and going down. Hopefully one day, you know, if Triple H takes everything over, you know, he's a wrestler's wrestler, uh, maybe that'll change. Hopefully so. Yeah, like you said, bro, there's some points where it's just totally, you know, totally missable, and you can just kind of fast forward through it, or you just, you know, forget to tape it, and you know, just you know, catch it another time. Kind of like thinking like that. But with WWE, if we can go back to you know your run there, obviously, you know, you, like we said, you do the singing gimmick, you do the movie critic thing. It kind of leads eventually to your release. I mean, you worked some on SmackDown, obviously too, but. What happened with the release? Did they ever explain to you why they were releasing you from the company? There, the reason I got from Johnny Ace, I got the call on July 3rd. They didn't want to work, apparently, on July 4th, being that holiday and Independence Day and all. But I got a call on July 3rd, and Johnny Ace gave me this bullshit reason of budget cuts, that uh, <clears throat> they had budget cuts, and, and they, they, you know, they needed to go ahead and execute my 90-day early out clause. Well, if you look at that time period, I'm the only one of their budget cuts <laughs> that got let go at that time. Hmm, so I never wow. really got a solid reason on, you know, why we're done with you. Uh, if you look back at all the Internet stuff after I got released, even Jim Ross hopped on there and said, you know, what what WWE did to Trevor Murdoch, I think it's bullshit. The guy's a good hand, works hard, and everybody, you know, is well-liked in the locker room. So it had to do something with the office, which, you know, I don't know what the particular reason is or why it is. Um, it's one of those things that I could sit here and focus on it and drive myself crazy. And it could probably be just as simple as I don't like Trevor today. Let's fire him because I've seen that shit. I'm just mad. I'm in a bad mood and I talk to the wrong person. I don't like him no more. Let's get rid of him. That, that was one of the hard things to, for me to swallow with the WWE because everything that you're doing built up as you're working your way to get to WWE is if you're the best wrestler, you're the hardest worker, you'll get elevated. You'll get the push. That's not the case in WWE. You, you may be the best wrestler, but there's just somebody that either a doesn't like you. B doesn't see your talent that other people do. And, and they just let it let you flounder. Look at Brian Danielson. How many times have they held that guy back? And he's probably one of the most over guys on the roster still to this day, and hasn't worked in almost a year. Still, what does that tell you? It tells you that guy's over and his wrestling can get over. People like wrestling, but he is not what the WWE model is. It's not what their idea of their top guy is. And in turn, they hold him back, hold him back, and, and put him in spots to this day. A UCLA doctor has cleared him to wrestle, and WWE still has it. Let that man work. Let that man wrestle. Give the people what they want. The thing is, WWE knows what kind of power that man has with them people. And they don't want to give that power back. <laughs> the people have all the power. Yeah. I don't understand it. Collectively, if the fans got together and said, no, we're not doing this anymore. We don't want this shit. We want to see wrestling. They would deliver wrestling. But we continue to watch their show and then buy their pay, you know, the, the network and all that other stuff. It gives them nothing but encouragement to continue to do what they're doing. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, as the rumor is with uh, Daniel Bryan, Bryan Danielson, it says that, uh, 
you know, he kind of ruined their plans a couple of years in a row that, you know, they wanted to push Roman Reigns or they want to push this guy, and he's just too damn over. And, you know, he gets Reigns booed. He got the Rock booed. You know, it's just like uh, you kind of subscribe to that rumor, like oh, maybe there's something to it that, you know, he's not only been cleared by one doctor, but by now a second doctor. Well, it's, I mean, the proof's in the pudding. I mean, the guy's over. Put him on your TV and let him work. If that guy wants to work with a concussion, that's a God-given right. He has control over his own body and can make decisions for himself. You know what I'm saying? It's they're trying to. I understand they want to protect the guys, and I'm completely pat them on the back. But you get to a point where you got to let a man make his own decisions for himself and let the consequences lay where they lay. Absolutely, totally, totally agree. Now, sticking with WWE, in 2011, I believe, or somewhere around there, didn't you work a couple dark matches, or weren't you almost on your way back to WWE? Yeah. um, Actually, uh, they'd given me a call, and they were interested in taking a look at me again. Um, They were already past that point of just hiring wrestlers and without looking at them, just based on what they were before. And then, you know, they find out the guy is way out of shape, can't wrestle anymore, and they've just spent a contract, a $100,000 contract on a guy that can't, he wasn't the wrestler he was before. So at that point, they were bringing guys in to have them work matches and take a look at them before they signed them. And again, I had a singles match with Evan Bourne, which worked really well. I had a singles match with, he's either Jay or Jimmy Uso, I don't know, know, obviously twins, I can't remember which one it was, but I had a good singles match with him. Um, they they flew me in to Tennessee for both these shots, and uh, I got back home. I got a call from Hunter. Um, they said that you know they were probably going to bring me in and, and make put me in a Val Venus role, where I had to elevate you know some of the younger guys and and bring them up and help them have better matches. And I was like, sure, no problem. I'm stoked as long as I know what my job position is. I don't have to bug you guys about it. And uh, I got a call. Again, two weeks later, Johnny Ace literally giving me the same fucking speech as he gave me the first time he cut me. Budget cuts, Trevor. Budget cuts. Well, this time, I wasn't so I wasn't worried about getting my job back. That's fucking bullshit, Johnny. I was like, that's a silly-ass excuse, and you know it. I was like, it may be the political correct one, but it's fucking bullshit. And I just went off. I was like, why would you guys even bring me in? I ended up, once I got the call from Hunter, I had my bar and grill at the time. I closed it down. (laughs) I I literally shut down my business that fed my family because I knew that I wasn't going to be able to do both because I was the manager and running my own business. So I shut that down so I could spend 100% with WWE. And then two weeks later, uh, they say budget cuts. We're not going to go ahead and we're going to renege on the deal. So now um, I went from all right, I got my career back on, on track again, and I closed down my business. So now I have no business. My career is nowhere, <laughs> completely opposite direction to where it was. And now i got to figure out how to feed my family. When you get to that point, you just say, fuck it. Fuck those guys. I don't need to go back there. I don't want to go back there. I don't want to deal with that stress. I'm I'm done. I've had my fill. I'm not. You know, and a lot of people don't understand. When you sign that contract, you sign over everything. They control everything, where you're going, what you're doing, PR events, uh, autograph signings. You literally have no idea. You don't, you don't have any free time. You have no, no, no opportunity to make plans. And I did that for four years and watched my son grow up in pictures 
no, I'm done with that. That's a man shouldn't have to live like that to be a superstar. Not when he's on TV every night. Absolutely. You you made some good points there. And if I could just mention one thing you you kind of said there that, that, I mean, obviously that really stuck out, but you kind of said something in passing that I found very interesting. You said the Val Venus role. Now we just had uh, Val on and he kind of describes his role as, as the gatekeeper but he, we almost described it with him as the Tito Santana role. So that's when he goes from Tito role to the Val role, and then you know you wanted to kind of take that role. What did you think of that role? Did you, did you think of it more of like a gatekeeper, like Val said? Um, I, I think it's a good spot to be in, and the reason why I say that is because you're constantly working, you're still on TV, you're still making good money, and like I said in, in the beginning of this interview, there are some guys out there that are made to be champions and there's guys out there to make those are out there that are make are there to make those champions look good. Um, what sucks about WWE is they're such an, they're so focused on age. Um, Val Venus could go out there and work probably three quarters of those young guys under the table back in the day when they were just using him to get other guys over. Um, he should have been more elevated and pushed. But because of his age, they didn't see any more star power in him. I thought that was a good position to be in. You're still traveling. You're still making money. You're still working with the number one company in the world. You're still able to work with young guys and help them elevate them. And you're kind of, you know, you're working for the office. You're there to get young guys over so they can get exposure. And I'm okay with that. I like that spot. It doesn't bother me. I, I To be honest with you, to hear and see what the world champion has to do to be world champion, I don't want no part of it. You talk about not having a life. That guy has no life. Outside of WWE, at least. I mean, hell, even John Cena, when he goes home now, he's got cameras there because of the total duty was crap. And that guy can't get away from a camera. I don't know how he doesn't get caught picking his nose. I mean, it, they're just always up his ass. There's just no way. <laughs> Very, very true. Now, as we uh, start to wind it down a little bit here, you've had such a long career, if you think about it, you know, over 17 years now, and you wrestled, obviously, in WWE. Pro Wrestling Noah really, really sticks out. But then even WLW, where you got a chance to wrestle a guy like Ming, and then even a guy like Go Shizaki at one point, who's another underrated great guy. Do you have a favorite match or maybe a couple matches in your career that stick out definitely as, you know, shining moments in your career? Um, the the Ming match was, was a pretty, like, career, career, a high career moment for me. He was the first real big name I got to. I mean, I've worked other names, but Ming was one of the scary ones. WCW, I watched him. Uh, and to be in the ring with him, I thought, you know, my career is, is certainly moving up. Um, there's another guy, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of him, more of an Oklahoma, Texas, Arkansas guy. His name's Bull Schmidt. The guy is six six at the time was two seventy shredded. Um, him and I went all across the Midwest kicking each other's ass and then being tag partners after that. Um had some stellar, stellar matches with him. Um there was another one when when uh Jarrett had left WWE and he was starting TNA, Harley was running PAX T V and he brought in Jeff Jarrett, Ming, Barbarian, and the Harris brothers to work our T V. Well, I had to work two matches that night. I had to work the opening match against my actual partner that I'm going into the school with. <laughs> and the last match of the night was against Jarrett. 
it was kind of like my tryout match for TNA. Hmm. And I went out there and had a, I mean, I still got the match somewhere on tape, but Jeff, you know, made me look a million bucks and vice versa. Um, had a really great match. And that match is what got me my opportunity with TNA. Um, another, another real good one is, is the one with the Hardys. You talk about telling stories and, and going out there and getting the people, you know, booing me when it's time and yaying them when it's time, having that back and forth control over the crowd. But the Hardys is, you know, that'll, that'll probably rank really high up there as well too. That is great. And, you know, you've wrestled a lot of places, you know, a lot of different countries and obviously all over the United States. But would you say Japan is your favorite place to wrestle or is there another place in mind that you kind of no, Japan is Japan is definitely number one. Um, you know, I got with me being over there for six months, I got immersed into the culture and their lifestyle and their, their matches and the fans on how they react. Um, yeah, Japan is definitely my favorite place to go. The one thing um, a lot of guys don't know, uh, we, when you go overseas, those fans don't, you know, American fans are kind of uh, spoiled in the sense that they get wrestling every, you know, at, there's probably wrestling on TV probably six, seven times a week now between ROH uh, and New Japan, TNA, WWE, if not more. Um, not to mention, there's a, wrestling show probably going on with either ROH, uh, TNA or WWE in the local area, probably within 200, 300 miles within a couple months. When you go over to Japan and you go over to Europe, we're over. And when you're over in Europe, you're only over there twice a year. So that means they only, those, a lot of those fans only get to see a live event twice a year. And that's, they got to do quite a bit of traveling to do that. So when you get over there, those fans are nuts. I mean, it's like old school rock star days. And when you pull up on the bus, there's 50 of them outside the hotel screaming your name and wanting to touch you. And then when you go into the arena, those people are, are just full of life and, and loving what's going on and just appreciative of what's going on. They're going nuts. Whereas when you come back over here to the States, we have been spoiled and saturated with wrestling. We really have to work now over here to get a reaction to the point where guys have got to do high spots with a damn near land, landed on their head just to get a reaction out of people. Yeah, totally. And that's unfortunately, you know, it's the, uh, the old adage of when you, you give them everything you got, it's hard to go back to the basics. But before we really end it here and we've got about one or two more things we want to touch on. The first thing I really want to hit and we, we just we talked about Lance Cade in great detail, and obviously it's crazy enough that it's been nearly six years since he passed away in 2010 at the just ridiculously young age of 30 years old. And I'm sure, like you said, he was like a brother to you, and it's, you still miss him to this day. But just if you can, if you, if, you, if you want to, you know, talk about Lance's passing and, you know, the fact that it is five, six years ago already, um, and that he left such, uh, you know, just such so much behind at such a young age. But talk about Lance's passing and uh, how, you know, to this day, do you still, you know, think about what you guys could have done post, you know, 2010 and on? Um, well, the way I found out was uh, I got woke up, and I, when I woke up, my wife's sitting next to me on the bed, and my kitchen manager of my bar and grill is sitting at the end of my bed. So when I when I wake up and I look at both of them, because my kitchen manager is also a wrestler that I trained, um, I asked him what happened to Harley. You know, Harley's up there in age. Uh, so that was my first 
you know, my first assumption, what happened to Harley? And my wife said, no, baby, it, it wasn't Harley. Something happened to Lance. And I said, what happened? And they told me that he had passed away. Well, I'm still half asleep. I was like, guys, this is a fucked up joke. I was like, don't even talk to me like that. And I grabbed my phone to see what time it was. And HBK had sent me a text and said, call me ASAP. So I'm still, you know, half awake. And I call Sean. And I go, Sean, man, what is all this shit I hear about Wayne And I'll never forget the words. Um, he said, kid, I'm sorry. He's gone. And, uh, I mean, I'm not afraid to admit it. I dropped to my knees. And I cried like a big old baby. I mean, we're talking about the most solid of dudes. We're talking about a good person. Not to mention the man's got two beautiful little girls that he's left on this earth. And, uh, you know, I was wrecked. Uh, I talked to Lance's dad, which that in itself was, was a tough deal. He was the one that found Lance. And I couldn't imagine ever seeing my son blue dead on the floor and having to to try to give him CPR. I would never, ever want to have to deal with that. Um, I found out the funeral arrangements and uh, my wife and my my two kids got in the car with me and we drove uh, 18 hours straight. I kind of considered it my last road trip with my best friend. Uh, Drove 18 hours straight down to San Antonio and uh, I spoke at his funeral, which was probably one of the hardest things I've ever had to do in my life. I was a pallbearer at his funeral. Um, which I still crack jokes that that big SOB, there's eight guys, that, you know, and we're carrying that casket and we're still struggling. Son of a bitch, you're always sandbagging us, even in death. And it's, uh, you know, it's just a, a, a little joke to try to lighten the mood. But um, after that, you know, there's, there's a certain amount of emptiness because my wife called him the other woman. You know, Lance and I would get off the road. We'd be on an 18-day Europe tour. We'd come home, and the next day, my wife would come in and go, you've been on the phone for an hour. Who are you talking to? Lance, you just got off the road with him. What do you have to talk about that you haven't already talked about? Well, the, the matches that are coming up, we got to get ready for them. It, you know, and then the ideas that we'd bounce off each other, and then just life. You know, he he was trained similar, you know, uh, from, by a similar person in a similar era by him being trained by Sean, me being trained by Harley. Uh, we were both married, had two young children, had the same philosophies about the business, about psychology in the ring and the way it should go. Um, we both didn't take shit off each other, anybody. It was just a huge, huge blow. Um, something you don't expect or, or see coming. And, uh, you know, as the, as the years go on, you know, things get a little bit, you know, easier, uh, but you know, you just have to, you know, pray that he's in God's hands and, you know, one day I'll get to meet him and kick an ass in heaven. Yeah, that's, uh, that's very well said. And it's just, it's so, it's just so unfortunate. And of course, you know, there has, there was at that point, there was a rash of, you know, incidents in within the business of, you know, people having these untimely passings. And thankfully it's kind of curtailed a little bit and hopefully, different changes within people's lifestyles are, are kind of keeping that afloat. But let's lighten the mood a little bit here. I just want to lighten it if I can, and that is if you could take yourself and Lance but put yourselves on opposite sides and your tag team partners for yourself is Harley Race and for Lance is Shawn Michaels, how would you book that match if you could uh, one day uh, down the road sometime? Oh, my goodness, man. You're talking about a dream match for us. Uh, 
Let's see here. We'll we'll put over Sean since he's a big baby face. Uh, well, uh, you know, in in that match, you you know, you got two tough guys against a, you know a, a tough guy and, and a tough guy with charisma. Uh, Sean never let his size hold him back from working with anybody. Uh, man, now that I think about it, that'd be one hell of a match. Uh, but I definitely put the baby face over, put Sean over, because uh, you know he's HBK and. If Lance is here, it'd be like, fuck you, I ain't putting you over. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and after the finish, you got to sing uh, Friends in Low Places to Harley. And then how does that, uh, how does well, that play we'll, out? Well, we'll see if they're paying me. We'll see if they're paying me well <laughs> enough, brother. Nice, nice. Well, before we end it, what we'd like to ask is uh, your legacy in the wrestling business and obviously what you're doing now with the KC Pro Wrestling Training Academy is you're getting the next generation of stars groomed and ready to compete, but when you close the book on your career and your efforts and what you've done in pro wrestling, what were people going to say about Trevor Murdoch? Um, I'm hoping they will say that when they watch me wrestle, they believed what they were seeing. Um, I've always tried to bring a certain amount of believability back to the wrestling ring, whether it come to you know throwing stiff shots or or, or getting aggressive with somebody. Um, I want people to know that when they saw me, they got their money's worth. Uh, nowadays, a lot of people don't have extra money. So when they come to the show, they're taking that extra money for the week and spending it basically on you and to try to, you know, for you to entertain them. And I want people to know that, you know, I love this business and gave everything I had and was the best of my ability. You know what I'm saying? I want people to go, man, that guy was a hell of a wrestler. He's tough. And I'll tell you what, there were a few times I thought it was real. And I'd be happy with that. Awesome. That's very cool, and I definitely agree with that. You were uh, always one of my personal favorites during that uh, Cade and Murdoch run because, like I said, those vignettes grabbed you from the top. But speaking of grabbing people, let's send everybody where they need to go, and that's the fans and the listeners of the two-man power trip of wrestling. Where can they find everything there is for both the Training Academy and yourself, Trevor Murdoch, on social media and wherever else they can find you? Well, right now you can definitely go to Kansas City Pro Wrestling Training Center on Facebook. Um, right now we are currently building the website, which should be up next week. Um, you can also go on Facebook and find me, uh, Trevor Murdoch. Just look at my pictures. You'll know if it's the real me, or you can check me out on Twitter at therealtmurdoch.com. Awesome. Well, listen, and this is where I will cut the interview.